You're listening to a special presentation on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. I'm Jerome Vaughn. 1968. It's a year that's unparalleled in recent American history. It started with a major scare for the U.S. military in Vietnam and ended with Apollo 8 orbiting the moon. It was a year that saw violence in the streets of Paris, Mexico City, and Chicago. And it's a year when Americans witnessed two heartbreaking assassinations and one of the closest presidential elections in U.S. history. Detroiters spent much of the year stunned by the unexpected events taking place around the country. But it wasn't all bad. The Tigers managed to win the World Series for the first time in 23 years, and there was plenty of great music being produced at Motown. Over the next hour, we'll listen back to some of the events of 1968 as remembered by Detroiters who experienced that unforgettable year. First, this news. Welcome to WDET's Look Back at 1968. I'm Jerome Vaughn. For many Americans, 1968 was the year when everything seemed to change. The prospect of victory in Vietnam became murkier after the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong launched the Tet Offensive in January, taking the U.S. military off guard and leading to battles throughout the South Vietnamese capital of Saigon, including inside the U.S. Embassy there. The attack led to some strange political results. It emboldened Democratic Senator Eugene McCarthy to challenge President Lyndon Johnson in February's New Hampshire primary. The offensive prompted CBS anchor Walter Cronkite to take a closer look into the Vietnam War. In a televised one-hour special, he questioned the ability of the U.S. to win in Vietnam. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance the military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. By the end of March 1968, the political pressures of the war became so great that President Johnson decided not to run for re-election. With our hopes and the world's hopes for peace in the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The country's political establishment was stunned. Johnson had been expected to run for a full second term in office. But a bigger shock came less than a week later, the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The civil rights leader was shot on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis on the evening of April 4th. The entire country was stunned. Here in Detroit, residents like Jay Butler, John Delmonique, and Harvey Oshinsky wondered what was next. 
This is an NBC News Hotline special report. Here is Don Hickman in Memphis. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot outside a Memphis motel this afternoon. His condition is not known at this time. Wow. That's a very heavy thing. WDET music host Jay Butler was a disc jockey at WCHB in April 1968. He'd moved to Detroit from Tennessee just two years earlier. So remembering where I was at the time, I think it was between uh, Detroit and Inkster, Michigan, the time that I heard it and getting to the station. Dr. Martin Luther King has been shot and wounded, possibly critically wounded, in Memphis, Tennessee this evening. Police describe a young, well-dressed, medium-built white male driving a white Mustang, shot at and wounded, possibly critically wounded, Dr. Martin Luther King at his motel room. I was uh, very much uh, put aback, if you will. Um, I, I, I think I, I said, why? What, what, what was that about? Why? I mean, uh, he wasn't as, as, as that kind of a, or a threat of something. Why would, they, why would somebody do that? I mean, I re, it really, uh, why would somebody do that? And uh, then you start seeing the pictures, and um, I didn't understand. I I didn't understand that. I don't think I understand that now, but I didn't understand that at that time. It uh, really hit me very hard. But I was, uh, what what is that? Why? I think that was really what what happened with me. Why why would they do that now? Why? Police said the assailant apparently jumped into a late model white car after the shooting and sped away. Repeating that bulletin, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot outside a Memphis hotel this evening. His condition not immediately known, but he was taken to a hospital. Lou Wood, NBC News, New York. John Delmonique is Ford Motor Company's broadcast news radio specialist. In 1968, he had just landed his first radio job playing music at WHFI-FM in Birmingham. I heard the bells go off, and that's the way the system would work back then. There was a bell on the UPI machine that would ring if there was a bulletin, and it was a continuous ring until you shut it off. So during one of the songs, off went the bell, and I believe it was sometime after 7 o'clock. There was a bulletin, and uh, it stated that he was dead at that point. They, they had already established that, and they confirmed it before they put it on the wire. So the bulletin read pretty much, um, Dr. Martin Luther King has been assassinated, um, and a further investigation is continuing to apprehend the, uh, the culprit. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. 
Harvey Oshinsky is an author, journalist, and television producer. He's also the founder of The Fifth Estate. In April 1968, he was trying to figure out how to deal with an Army draft notice. I was speaking, invited to speak, I think, about The Fifth Estate or the underground press or something like that. This is pre-ABX days. And uh, when I heard about Dr. King's assassination, I just I was so sad and angry and upset and lost. You know, not another one. I mean, what does it take? And, and I remember writing on a, a, a chalkboard. Only the chalk broke because I was too angry. I remember that. My country, tis of thy people, you, you're dying, which is a Buffy St. Marie lyric from one of my favorite songs of hers. And that's just how I felt. What the hell? I mean, what's wrong with us? Dr. King? If, if you can kill Dr. King, you can kill anybody because he was a hero. We didn't have too many heroes in those days who could speak both in terms of peace and civil rights and social justice issues, and Dr. King had it all. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. Real crazy. Uh, but I said, I also said at the same time, you know, I guess just some folks never get over this. They finally got rid of him. A few hours away, Democratic presidential candidate Robert Kennedy received word of King's assassination moments before he was scheduled to talk to a crowd of supporters in an African-American neighborhood of Indianapolis. Kennedy was warned not to speak, but he ignored that advice. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have... Some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization Black people amongst blacks, 
and white amongst whites, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand, compassion, and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. I ask you tonight to return home, to say a prayer for the family Martin Luther King, yeah, it's true, but more importantly to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love, a prayer for understanding and that compassion that of which I spoke. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. 
We're going to take a short break. When we come back, political violence continues to take its toll on the U.S. You're listening to WDET's special presentation on 1968. listening to a special look back at 1968 on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jerome Vaughn. In the spring of 1968, several U.S. cities burned in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Politicians and civil rights leaders pleaded for calm. Meanwhile, the race for the presidency continued and candidates in both parties tried to win primaries and secure their party's nomination. The Democratic race had been fractured by President Johnson's decision in March not to run for re-election. The battle for the Democratic nomination suffered another blow a couple of months later. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's possible, ladies and gentlemen. It is possible. He has not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rayford Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. Robert Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles on the night of June 5th. He died the next day. His death came only a few weeks after he had campaigned for the presidency in Detroit. As WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter reports, Kennedy left an impression and a void that some in Metro Detroit say lingers to this day. At a Detroit park on the corner of what was once 12th Street in Claremont, a man glances around, noting it's the site that sparked three days of violence in 1967. Back then, Andy Sachs was a young photographer for the Michigan Daily Student newspaper and one of several journalists who crammed into Robert Kennedy's motorcade as he campaigned in Detroit in the spring of 1968. Sachs says after a few stops, the motorcade purposely targeted this intersection, an area many at the time said was one of the most dangerous in Detroit. Kennedy perched atop an open convertible and was quickly surrounded by an adoring crowd. As a photographer, I could get pretty close to him. Uh, when he reached out to shake someone's hand, they, they really give it a big tug, and, and I saw him start to lose his balance and, and begin to fall into the crowd. I just put down my camera and reached out with one of my hands and grabbed a hold of his shoulder and pulled him back up. He had no bulletproof vest, none of that kind of protection, but he did have someone of his campaign crew holding him around the waist so he wouldn't be pulled out of the car. Sachs calls it a surreal sight, the vestiges of violence still visible in a neighborhood filled with happy people cheering one of the most famous politicians in the country. I'm just amazed at how many people were on the street and, and the kind of celebratory atmosphere. He was plain speaking. Sure, he was a rich guy from Boston, but he seemed to have a vision of government and the way it should interact with the whole of the population of the United States. He connected with inner city people. After President John Kennedy's assassination in 1963, Brother Bobby became a champion of the civil rights movement. How can you go arrest somebody if they haven't violated the law? They're ready to violate the law. Could I suggest that the sheriff and the district attorney read the Constitution of the United States? Such comments led to threats of violence against the brother of the slain president. And another young photographer in that 1968 Motor City motorcade, Jay Cassidy, says those threats followed Robert Kennedy to Detroit. The first stop on the trip was Cadillac Square, the downtown square, and there was a huge crowd there. That's where the 
group that was called Breakthrough, which was a sort of a hate group that arrived with signs, give us your blood, Bob, all of it. No, if we could get to Mr. Kennedy, he offered to donate blood to the Viet Cong. So we consider that a man in a position he's in as Senator of the United States that says that he wants to donate blood to the enemies of this country and the murders of his brother, then we think he should donate all of it. There's people willing to take that blood and send it to the Viet Cong, all of his blood. Those remarks are from members of the group in Detroit in 1967 when they first trailed Kennedy to a Jefferson-Jackson Democratic Party event at Cobo Hall. Though he was about a year away from declaring his bid for the presidency, Kennedy had already honed his message that the U.S. could not be judged a strong nation simply because it was the wealthiest country on Earth. The gross national product includes air pollution and advertising for cigarettes and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and jails for the people who break them. The gross national product swells with equipment for the police to put down the riots in our cities. Still, it goes up as the slums are rebuilt on the ashes. By 1968, Kennedy's mere presence was something of a tonic at times. He calmed a mostly African-American crowd in Indianapolis the night Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered, then intended to put his campaign on hold until after the funeral. But civil rights activists pleaded with Kennedy to keep a scheduled appearance the next day in Cleveland and present a message of nonviolence as cities across the country burned in the wake of King's death. Kennedy responded with a speech that was in many ways an indictment of American society. For there is another kind of violence, slower, but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. This is the violence that afflicts the poor, that poisons relations between men because their skin has different colors. This is the slow destruction of a child by hunger and schools without books and homes without heat in the winter. Kennedy had rarely addressed the death of his brother John, but on this day, after Dr. King was killed, Kennedy's words defined what he called the mindless menace of violence. When you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others, not as fellow citizens, but as enemies. But we can perhaps remember that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness. Surely this bond of common fate can begin to teach us something. Back at the site of the start of the 1967 Detroit Rebellion, photographer Andy Sachs stares five decades into the past. Sachs was barely in his 20s then, but by early June of 1968 had already seen the assassination of a president and a civil rights icon. Then came the news of an assassin's bullet fired at Robert Kennedy in California, and Sachs says he feared he'd finally seen the death of a dream. I wasn't so shocked when I heard that Robert Kennedy had been killed. I just sort of said, mm-hmm, okay, this is America, isn't it? It was sad. I mean, I still kind of get emotional about it um, because we looked at him as, as, a, as a hope, you know, for the country. And um, 
that hope was gone after he walked into that hotel kitchen in Los Angeles. Sachs says he wonders if there will ever be another politician with Robert Kennedy's ability to inspire people to, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, seek the better angels of our nature. Robert Kennedy, by all accounts, was not a saint, but he called for unifying all segments of the U.S. populace, and there appear to be few ready to shoulder that mantle in these bitterly divided political times. I'm Quinn Kleinfelter. During the summer of 1968, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia, ending what was known as the Prague Spring. Americans witnessed riots in Miami, Little Rock, and Cleveland. In late August, the country's attention turned to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Richard Nixon had already been named the nominee of the Republican Party at its convention in Miami a few weeks earlier. The Democratic Convention was plagued with problems from the outset. Protesters had come to Chicago from around the country to protest the Vietnam War. Demonstrators marched down Michigan Avenue and battled law enforcement in what some called a police riot. Inside the convention hall, it was just as chaotic as NBC's John Chancellor described. Here with billy clubs clearing people out. They're not using them on people, they're carrying them, and they're dragging everybody right out of the aisle here. It's a terrific crush. About one, two, three, four, five, six, six policemen came in here, some of them wearing the blue helmets of the Chicago Police Force, and they are dragging out of here the people who were involved in this. One delegate from New York who objected to having his credentials checked. Delegates argued over postponing the convention so it could be moved to another city. They would wind up staying in Chicago, but still had to choose between numerous presidential candidates, such as Senator Eugene McCarthy, Senator George McGovern, and Vice President Hubert Humphrey. One candidate who was overshadowed by events was Channing Phillips. Phillips was the Washington, D.C. chair of Robert Kennedy's campaign, but when Kennedy was killed, his D.C. supporters nominated Phillips to run in his place. What makes this noteworthy is that Channing Phillips became the first African-American officially nominated for president by a major political party. He won enough support at the Democratic convention to finish fourth in the balloting. Detroit Congressman John Conyers gave a speech to second Phillips nomination in Chicago. He is a man who alone signals new hope for the future of this country. Now we want everyone to understand that this nomination is from and by a man in America because we believe that one man, even in this party, can still make a difference. We still hold the conviction that this party can emerge with one man who, by the force of his character, by the eloquence of his rhetoric, can alter the course of Democratic Party politics. Reverend Channing Phillips is a testimonial to human purpose and courage. One who, by all owing his name to be, allowing his name to be placed in nomination, is willing to challenge bigotry and injustice wherever we find it in this sick society. And like our departed leader of nonviolence, the late Dr. Martin Luther King, he too dares to dream that someday black children will be judged in America not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. This is Congressman John Conyers, 
of Detroit, seconding the nomination of he Reverend Channing Phillips of Washington, D.C. office on earth that he will utilize those powers to the fullest to redress the shame of a world in which two-thirds of its inhabitants starve, are starving or are ill-housed. He promises to bring an end to the Vietnams of the future, which are already visible upon the world scene. He will make the government an example to be followed by every citizen and corporation alike. He will do something about the military-industrial complex in this nation, and he will bring to every American the sense of justice and pride that I don't feel has been presented here yet at this convention. But most importantly of all, Channing Phillips has come to learn, as every honest black and white American leader must, that the greatness of this nation doesn't depend upon its size or its wealth, but instead upon how it chooses to use it. And that is why we know that if out of this nomination tonight, we will be able to bring to America the long ignored issues of this country and place them in sharper focus than ever before. We want a candidate who clearly perceives the insanity of economic and racial divisions that have been among us for so long. And we would, through this genuinely new leadership, be forced to find an honesty, a common ground to end the political hypocrisy that has so long been standard operating procedure in American politics. He would create instead a society that would find meaningful employment for the 40 millions of Americans black, but ironically mostly white, who are the victims of the living hell of being poor in America. We desperately need a candidate of the presidency of the United States who would unhesitatingly commit the 35 billions of dollars annually spent in visiting death and destruction upon that pathetic, poor, and tiny nation of Southeast Asia, and instead bring to bear a way to eliminate the slums, the ghettos, and the poor housing in America, and accomplish what Thomas Wolfe said so many years ago, so then to every man his chance, to every man regardless of his birth, his golden shining opportunity, to every man his right to live, to work, to be himself, and to become whatever thing his manhood and his courage would combine to make him. For those reasons, my fellow Americans, I with great honor place in nomination and second the nomination of Reverend Channing E. Phillips. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, we'll hear some of the best music of 1968 and we'll remember the Tigers World Series victory. You're listening to a special presentation on 1019 WDET. Welcome back to this special look at 1968 on 1019 WDET. I'm Jerome Vaughn. 
Music around the world continued changing in 1968 to reflect the social upheaval that was taking place. The Beatles released a new double album that reflected their individual passions. Simon and Garfunkel had two top charting albums in 1968, including the soundtrack from The Graduate. And Motown continued pumping out the hits from Detroit. WDET's Rob Reinhardt takes a look back at 1968 from a musical perspective. As 2018 is coming to a close, we look back 50 years to 1968, which arguably was one of the best years for the city of Detroit in terms of the music made in that year. Oh, there was lots of classic music being made in 1968 from all around the world. In London, the Beatles were working on the White Album. George Harrison also would go solo in 68, the first of the Fab Four to do so as well as two albums from a little band called Fleetwood Mac, which came out in 1968, their first two, and the Rolling Stones released a classic called Beggar's Banquet. Over in California, Creedence Clearwater Revival made their debut in 68, and the Birds released their singular classic called Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Miles Davis released two albums, his last acoustic album and his first delving into electric music in 1968, and Johnny Cash released his Folsom Prison record. But if you look at a list of the music made in 1968, a disproportionate amount of it came from one place, the city of Detroit and Detroiters. Aretha Franklin, who died this past August here in Detroit at the age of 76, had a huge year in 1968. 67 was pretty good, too, with lots of classic songs like Respect being issued in that year. But 1968 cemented things, starting in January with the album called Lady Soul. And there would be more from Aretha before the year 1968 was out. There was a woman who was living in Detroit 1966 and 7 at the Verona Apartments in Midtown, but she moved out to the West Coast and made her debut in 1968. But where do you think she was writing those songs? Yeah, here in Detroit. Joni Mitchell left her husband Chuck and left for the West Coast, where she worked with David Crosby on her debut album called Song to a Seagull. But back in Detroit, of course, we had Motown Records, which was going super strong in 1968. The Temps released The Temptations Wish It Would Rain, which would be the final album for the classic five-member lineup of that band. But they would change the lineup the next year and begin a whole new genre called Psychedelic Soul. Why were they changing? Well, Dennis Edwards wanted the same treatment as Diana Ross. Through the mirror of my mind, time after time, I see a reflection of you and me. Dennis Edwards wanted to be identified as the frontman of The Temptations. Didn't happen. But what did happen is the first album from Diana Ross and The Supremes formerly known just as The Supremes. It was called Reflections. And the rock clubs in Detroit were active as well in 68. It would be years before we would get to know the lead guitarist of this band as a solo artist, and decades before he would become the wingnut he is now. But back in 68, he was a member of a band called the Amboy Dukes, who had their second album and their first that got national exposure. Take a ride to the land inside of your mind. A couple of minutes ago, you remember I said Aretha wasn't done with us in 1968. No, in June came another 
classic record. Songs that are still with us today. The album was called Aretha Now. You By the way, Pitchfork calls that song number 15 in the top 200 songs of the 1960s. And the summer would continue with more great music out of the Motor City. In fact, before the Tigers would clinch the American League Championship and go on to win the World Series, this album was being released in August of 68. The album originally was called In the Groove. This song, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, had already been a hit for Gladys Knight and had been tried by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles earlier in the year. But it was this version that would actually launch Marvin Gaye as a solo artist and enter our collective consciousness forever. Prior to In the Groove, and I heard it through the grapevine, Marvin Gaye was known as a duet partner. And in fact, before August was out, he would go back to that and release the album called You're All I Need with his partner Tammy Terrell. And then, of course, since 68, there was a guy who'd been putting out some local singles for a few years in Detroit, but had launched two songs that got national airplay thanks to a little AM radio station called The Big Eight, CKLW. And he was getting set to release his album debut as The Bob Seger System. So there you go. As we come to the end of 2018, a look back at the pivotal year 50 years ago, 1968, here in the Motor City. For 1019 WDET, I'm Rob Reinhart. Besides listening to great Motown music, the city had another reason to celebrate in 1968, the Detroit Tigers. The 2018 Tigers had little to celebrate in finishing with one of the worst records in Major League Baseball this season. But there was a bright spot. More than a dozen members of the 1968 World Championship team received special recognition during a 50th anniversary celebration at Comerica Park. WDET's Pat Batchelor reports. When the St. Louis Cardinals came to town in September, they were playoff contenders. The Tigers were not. The Cards ultimately faded and missed this year's National League playoffs. With no chance of a rematch of the 1968 World Series, fans at Comerica Park were treated to a reunion instead. And, to borrow a line from Monty Python, there was much rejoicing. Surviving members of the 68 world champions entered the stadium in style, each riding shotgun in a convertible General Motors sports car. One by one, they filed out in front of the Tigers' dugout and approached the stage setup for them behind the pitcher's mound. Fans cheered as radio announcer Dan Dickerson introduced their hometown heroes, giving the loudest roar to one of the greatest Tigers of all time. Fans too young to remember the 68 World Series watched highlights on the scoreboard towering over left field. Behind home plate, Craig Castle recalled his youth. He was a student at Wayne State University 50 years ago. When tickets for games 3, 4, and 5 in Detroit went on sale, Castle says he waited all night to get his. Just like it was a huge party. All, all night when we were here, the, the tickets went on sale. We were partying all around Tiger Stadium. It was incredible. It was incredible. The Tigers spared no expense to honor the 68 team. 
They even brought back recording star Jose Feliciano to sing the national anthem in much the same style he did before game five at Tiger Stadium. Tigers left the stage, members of the 2018 squad presented them with individual replicas of the World Series trophy. That pleasantly surprised John Hiller, who split time as a starter and relief pitcher during that championship summer. When we get on the field and we see these pictures and the uniforms and this all set up and trophies that we've never had those uh, World Series. I've never had a World Series trophy. And uh, it just, uh, I think most of it had teary eyes out there. A few tears were shed for teammates who've passed away. Gates Brown, Norm Cash, and Jim Northrup, to name a few. But they, too, were part of this ceremony. The initials of every deceased member of the 68 Tigers were sewn into the caps of those still here. Mickey Lolich, who pitched games five and seven from start to finish, understands what this moment means. I really thought, with a tear in my eye, about this, this thing because saw guys might not see him again. And some of the emotion arose from what winning in 1968 meant, not only to these players, but to a city ripped apart by violence the year before. Certainly the World Series did not miraculously heal Detroit, which still bears scars a half century later. Dick Trzewski was a player in 68 and a coach for the Tigers team that won the 1984 Fall Classic. When asked to compare the two, Trixie demurred. This team, I think, was very special because it came at a, a very unique time in, in Detroit's history. You know, the people here, we were kind of beat up in 67. And, and, uh, and 68 came at a nice time. The exact time was 4.06 on the afternoon of October 10th. That's when Tigers catcher Bill Freehand caught Tim McCarver's series-ending pop-up, then caught pitcher Mickey Lolich popping into his arms to celebrate their triumph. It brought joy to Tigertown then, and still does, 50 years later. I'm Pat Batchelor, WDET News. The 1968 World Series generated some controversy in the world of music that year as Jose Feliciano performed his version of the Star-Spangled Banner just before Game 5. Tigers announcer Ernie Harwell had asked Feliciano to sing at Tiger Stadium, but many Americans just weren't ready for his rendition of the song.
When the Detroit Tigers won the 1968 World Series, pitcher Mickey Lolich was named the series' most valuable player. Fifty years later, he published his autobiography with writer Tom Gage. One thing readers will learn is that Lolich became a lefty by accident. He tells WDET's Pat Batchelor how it happened. I was two years old and I was riding my hot rod tricycle down the sidewalk and I lost control of it. Then I went off the curb and parked there was an Indian motorcycle, which is equal to a Harley Davidson. And I hit the kickstand and the kicks, the bike came down on top of me and it broke my left collarbone in two places. Well, back in 1942, they sort of just take and strap your arm across your chest and wait for it to heal. Well, when the, they took the bindings off, I had total atrophy in my left arm. It wasn't working at all. So they had an exercise program of my parents, you know, moving my arm in front of my chest and back and forth. And then they moved to, you know, putting it up and over my head like it's a throwing action. Now, at that age, I was fascinated with picking up little trucks or cars and throwing them with my right arm. And when they saw me throwing things, they would, you know, go, wait a minute, we got to strengthen his left arm. So the next move would put my folks in jail now. They tied my right arm behind my back and made me use my left hand. Well, I still wanted to throw those little cars and trucks, so I threw them left-handed. And when I built up good strength in my arm, they untied my arm in the back and let me use whatever hand I wanted to. But I continued to eat, write, or whatever I did, right-handed. But when it comes to a throwing action, I only threw left-handed. And that's how I became left-handed pitcher. As you researched the book, uh, worked on the book with uh, Tom Gage, you had a chance to watch replays of the 68 World Series on YouTube. Uh, what do you notice now when you watch those games that you pitched uh, that maybe you didn't notice or didn't remember before? I, first off, it's the first time I saw the replay of the World Series. I'd never seen it. We watched all seven games. And the thing I noticed, I mean, sort of referring to me, is that I was taught the first three pitches you throw, two of them have to be strikes. You go right after the hitters. Today, they nibble at corners way too much. And another thing I noticed was that... Uh, I used to finish games, and today they don't. They're geared to pitch six innings, and that's it. So baseball has changed a lot. Those who remember the 68 World Series often talk about how badly the city needed something to feel good about after the riots the year before uh, and how the Tigers gave them that uh, in 68. Many of the problems that existed 50 years ago are still here today. Uh, Detroit has not yet fully healed, but you had no way of knowing that back in 1968, what 2018 would be like. Uh, Do you still feel uh, as if you and your teammates did something good for Detroit? Yeah, we all believe we did something good, you know. It. Uh, I remember there were some police officers that uh, worked at Tiger Stadium and stuff when we were down there, and one of them told me that he says in 1967, he says you would see three fellas standing on a street corner, and they were actually looking for trouble. You know, they wanted to do something that wasn't good. How they knew, I don't know, but police officers can sense that stuff. And they says, in 1968, you see the same three guys standing on a street corner, 
but they had a transistor radio up to their ear, and they were listening to the Tiger Ballgames. And they would say, we think you guys prevented anything from happening again during the summer of 68. Now, that's what I was told, and I'm glad I can believe them. Mickey Lolich went on to become the Tigers' all-time leader in strikeouts, shutouts, and games started. The title of his book is Joy in Tigertown. He spoke with WDET's Pat Bachelor. You've been listening to a special presentation of 1019 WDET, looking back at the year 1968. We hope you've enjoyed it. Special thanks to Quinn Kleinfelter, Pat Bachelor, Rob Reinhardt, and Sam Bobian for their help on this project. For WDET News, I'm Jerome Vaughn.